Welcome to 2024, and as we begin this new year, uh, I thought it would be good to go to God's Word, to the book of Romans, that speaks into a culture that has drifted away from what God intended it to be. Paul was eager and ready to preach the gospel, and so he did that to the Roman people, but in the midst of it all, he gave them some warnings of what happens in a culture when it moves away from God, how it takes a downward spiral along that path until eventually God has no choice but to bring judgment. I believe the book of Romans speaks to us today. So I hope you'll enjoy it as we dig in with these podcasts. Take your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. That's going to be our key verse this morning and those verses that surround it. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And in Romans 3, verse 25, there is one word that shows up that I really want us to think about today, and that is this word propitiation. Propitiation. Say that word with me. Propitiation. Chances are that's the first time you've used that word in the last seven days. Uh, You, in all likelihood, have not used that word as a part of your regular vocabulary in the course of this week, but the word propitiation is a wonderful word. And the Bible says in verse 25, Romans chapter 3, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Talking about Jesus Christ, carrying down from verse 24, talking about Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now, we want to stop there, and I want to talk about that uh, great truth this morning. Let's suppose you and a neighbor had a falling out. That's not beyond the realm of possibility. Let's just say the falling out was completely your fault. You um, maybe, and I'm not talking because I know, I'm just talking because maybe this is what happened. Maybe you had a dog, and it got over into the neighbor's property and tore his yard or his garden, dug up all of his shrubs, dug up all of her rose bushes, and made a terrible mess of things. So much so, it was so destroyed that that what she felt or he felt toward you was absolute wrath. And uh, anything you could do, anything you could do would not appease that person. You could not make peace at all. There was no peace to be made. And beyond that, you weren't all that interested in making peace anyway. Uh, you had your own plans about what you were going to do going forward, but that, that whole thing was left raw. It was left uh, uncared for. It was undone. And, and that relationship between you and the neighbor was so terribly ruined. Now imagine that there's another person that comes in, maybe another neighbor that comes in. And they look at the whole situation and they say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix it. And so they go to great lengths to pay for all the damage, repair all the damage, put the yard back together, even make it better than it has ever possibly could have ever been, ever had been in the past. Puts everything back together, so much so that this neighbor that has had their yard torn up turns and accepts the apology from the one who tore up the yard, uh, accepts the payment from the neighbor that has paid for the yard, 
and actually chooses the one whose dog did all the damage to make that person their absolute favorite. Now, what the neighbor that stepped into the middle did was to propitiate for your mess. Uh, the mess was your fault. The dog was your dog. We could have even take a dog out of the picture and just say, you're the one that tore up the yard. You destroyed everything. But a neighbor stepped into the middle and stood in the middle and prepared, uh, repaired everything and paid for everything, so much so that the person that had been originally offended turned and with great forgiveness in their heart for what you had done, chose you to be their absolute favorite. Now, that's just a human illustration, maybe not even a good illustration, but that is an idea of what propitiation is all about. It is when someone steps into the place of another and pays their debt, so much so that they totally erase the debt, so much so they give them a brand new start, and you are absolutely appreciative of that one who propitiated for you. The word propitiation is the word in the Greek, it is helestrion. In the Old Testament, it is equivalent to the word mercy seat. So if you've ever studied anything about the tabernacle, you know that there is the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever watched Indiana Jones, you know something about the Ark of the Covenant. And so here's the Ark of the Covenant. It's a big box, and inside that box there were three specific items, and it's set inside the Holy of Holies. But the lid that went on top of this Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and all the way into this holy place and would offer blood on the altar, on the mercy seat as a covering of sins for all of the people. So the word that is translated propitiation in our Bible is also the same word in the Old Testament refers to the mercy seat. Propitiation is this. The action is directed toward God. He is, God is the offended party. The underlying purpose is to change God's attitude from one of wrath to one of goodwill and favor. I want to be in God's goodwill. I want God's favor. This verse was especially important to one man, William Cowper. And now I'm looking back about 250 years ago. And William Cowper is discouraged and sick of soul and heart and mind. He'd been put in St. Albans Insane Asylum in England. The man had not known much happiness or joy in his life. It seemed like sorrow had been his lot all the way through. His mother died when he was six years old. His father had shipped him off to a boarding school. And all through his life, it had been heartache, 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 heartache. And now, at the bottom, four different times in this man's life, he would attempt suicide. At the very bottom, this is what he said. There in St. Albans, there in a room, he said, the happy period which was to afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ Jesus 
had finally arrived. I flung myself into a chair by the window, and seeing a Bible there, I ventured once more to apply to it for comfort and instruction. The first verse I saw was Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Immediately, I receive strength to believe it. And the full beams of the sun of righteousness, the S-U-N of righteousness, shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the completeness of his justification. In an instant, I believed and received the peace of the gospel. Unless the Almighty's arm had been under me, I think I would have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears, transports choked my utterance. I could only look up to heaven and in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder, but the work of the Holy Spirit is best described in his own words. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. That was year 1764. He was 33 years old, and he was in an insane asylum. And this is what he wrote. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. There's a man that encountered the grace of God. There's a man that understood what it was when he couldn't pay his own debt that somebody paid it for him. There's a man with his, his sanity had been questioned. He was as low, he was as far down as he could be. He despaired of even life himself when God stepped in through one verse of Scripture that God had made his son to be a propitiation for us that our sins might be forgiven. Hello, this is Monty Schenkel, and we sure appreciate you listening to this podcast. This is a new effort on our part from Take Heart Ministry. A little over a year ago, we began Take Heart Ministry with the intention of telling people by means of radio and also the internet and now by podcast that they can take heart because Jesus cares for them. If you'd like to know more about us, if you'd like to check our ministry out, you can go to takeheart.org. If you would like to personally contact me, you can write to Monty Schenkel or you can write to mschenkel at takeheart.org. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. There are three things I want to set before you this morning. Number one, I could never please the Father. You say, what a pessimistic verse of Scripture, preacher. I could never please the Father. Some of you may say, well, I had a father like that too. 
But that's not the father I'm talking about. And don't miss my point. It is impossible for a sinner such as I to please a holy God. I could never please him. Somewhere deep down inside every person, I think, deep down inside every person, God has put a desire in their heart to somehow or other please him. But it's impossible to please him unless he takes some action on our behalf. And if he takes no action, then we might even look at him and call him unjust. But he is not unjust. He is loving and full of grace. But I'm saying that in my life, in my own sinful life, in my own self, there's not one thing I could ever bring to him, not one thing I could ever do for him that God would say, pleased, because we are at a distance. We are not reconciled with one another. I need someone to step into the gap and make propitiation for me that God might be pleased in me. But in my own self, I can't please God. I might try it by my performance. So we work hard, and we do good deeds, and we give to charity, and we intend to make ourselves better, and by some way, by being better and better and better, we're going to please God. We say, well, I'm going to go to church every week, and I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm even going to begin to tithe, and I'm going to do all of those things, and somehow by all these things that I do, by my performance, if I go a week without cussing, somehow the God's going to be pleased with that. Or if I go a week without being, uh, being sassy with my husband or my wife, then God somehow is going to be pleased with that. Or if I obey my parents for a week, or if I keep my eyes where they need to be for a week, that somehow by my performance I am going to please God, and you're going to fall short. You're going to fall short. But the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Very much like when I failed chemistry the first time. I mean, I fell short. I came down to the end of that semester knowing I was in trouble. And I went to see the chemistry professor. And he looked up my score and he looked up my name. And he looked at me and said, Mr. Schenkel, it appears you've had a good time this semester. He said, have you had a good time this semester? And I said, well, you know, Doc, I went to class. I've been doing this. And, and you know, I've been doing all these things. And, and, uh, and he said, well, that's a shame. You should have gone ahead and had a good time because you're going to flunk chemistry. That's what he told me. And I did. My performance, my performance. He said, if you make 100 on the final, I'll pass you. Well, I didn't. I made in the 80s. I thought that was pretty good. But my performance still fell short. And there's nothing we can do in performance that is going to commend us to God. There's nothing you can do with penance that is going to commend you to God. Some people think, well, if I give enough, um, uh, what would God demand of me? What could I give of God in order that I might please him? Somehow if I could just please God, but I can't please God, not even with the gifts that I would bring. Uh, the Old Testament asked the question, what, what does the Lord require of thee? Well, some people would have said, well, if I give my firstborn, if I give my firstborn, is that what I should give? Would God be happy if I gave my firstborn? Well, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, down in the valley of Hinnom, they built an altar and a sacrifice to the god Molech. And so they'd take their 
firstborn, they'd take their little babies down there, and they, the furnace had been heat, heated red hot, and they would throw their babies in there to sacrifice to a God that they called Molech. God was abhorred with such an idea as that. He destroyed those who came up with the idea, and Israel wound up going into captivity because of it. Abraham, Isaac, and Moriah on Mount Moriah. It needs not be repeated because it's already been accomplished on Calvary. Jesus Christ has paid our debt. It is not by your performance. It is not by your penance. It is not by, by any gift that you might give. It is not by your possibilities. You say, oh God, if you just give me a little bit more time. Uh, I am a promise. I am a possibility with a capital P. I mean, there's great, great, great big uh, potentiality inside of me. I am a promise, and I have great possibilities, but your possibilities cannot please God. Whatever you might possibly do, children, listen, as you grow up, whatever you might possibly do, those things are not going to please God. Maybe you'll be the person that finds a cure for cancer. That would be wonderful. Maybe if you could stop heart disease, that, that would be wonderful. Uh, maybe if you could get the Republicans and the Democrats to get along with each other, maybe that would be wonderful. Maybe you can fix the economy, maybe that would be wonderful. But I can tell you in all of those things, the possibilities do not please God, and then perfection does not please God. You say, if I just live an absolute, sinlessly perfect life, is God going to be pleased? No, 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 no. Now, you say, what a terrible God you must be talking about. No, folks, I'm not talking about a terrible God. I'm talking about an awesome God. Because Augustus Toplady wrote in the hymn, Rock of Ages, not of labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I can't come to God with a price. Whether that be my performance, my penance, my possibility, my perfection, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Aren't you glad for a God who says, you don't come to me bringing a bunch of stuff. You come to me just as you are. You say, but this is a God who is not pleased with me. This is a God that I cannot please. Yes, I know, but there is more to the story than that. There's more to the story than that. The Bible says in verse 19 that we might protest our innocence, but that the whole world is guilty before him. Verse 20, that we might try to make it right, but we can never make it right. We may try to understand our failures, but we're never going to fully understand our failures. Uh, our failures. Verse 21, we fail to understand what God has clearly set forth, for it says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God has set this thing forth. We cannot save ourselves. Romans 3:23. for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, are you ready for some good news? I cannot please the Father, but Jesus pleased the Father for me. That's good news. What a wonderful love this is. What wondrous love this is. Oh, my soul, my soul, this is free. And the Father, even though I could never please him in my sinful flesh, the Father is fully pleased with his Son. Now, hear this. There he is at baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There he is on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Jesus Christ crying out on the cross. It is completed. It is finished. 
Salvation's plan is finished. And the Father in heaven is well pleased with the Son. When I accept the Son and believe this and embrace this, then all that Jesus Christ did on the cross is mine. He's mine. Completely. The Father is absolutely 100% pleased with me because he is pleased with him. Do you see that? This is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is Jesus who was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteous of God in him. And God is 100% pleased with Monty Schinkel because Jesus Christ has propitiated for my sin. He has stepped into my place and he's made everything right. When I trust him as my Savior, everything is right. Yes, top lady is right. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. There's not one gift I could give, not one thing I could do. But the Father is totally pleased with him. So therefore now, folks, get this. Therefore now, he is totally pleased with me. You say, well, you know, at the beginning I thought you thought too little of yourself. And now, preacher, I think you're thinking too, too much of yourself. God's not angry toward you. He takes pleasure in you. No matter how broken your life may be, he only sees you today in the light of his son. That's how God looks at me. You say, well, Brother Monty, if you're just saying this because you're just saying this is, this, this is just how God looks at you. Well, if this is how God looks at me, then folks, doesn't it stand a reason that's the only thing that matters? Because it's true. If this is how God looks at you in the light of his son, then it must be that that is the way it actually is. If this is how God looks at you, you hold your hand up here, but then suddenly there's another hand that comes in front of it. You don't see the back hand because you see the front hand, and God is looking at you through the mighty, mighty work that his son did for you on the cross. That's our hope, and the Father is pleased with me because Jesus Christ pleased the Father for me. He took my place. Well, the Bible says in verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. He is the just justifier. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How much did it cost? It was free. Justified freely. My salvation did not cost me anything. Jesus did the saving. I did the sinning. He did the work, and it was free. How far did it reach? It reached as far down as the grace of God needed to reach. How long is it going to last? It's going to last forever. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. It is going to last forever. I am indissolubly linked to Jesus. The Father does not see me apart from his Son. And if I am indissolubly, eternally linked to Jesus, nothing can ever separate me from Jesus. I'm telling you, I could never please the Father, but the Father's Son, Jesus, pleased the Father for me. And here's the third thing. I shall please him throughout all eternity. Now, we start pleasing him right off the bat when we come to know Jesus. 
I mean, in our, in our sinful flesh, we can never please him. But once you come to know Jesus, I mean, you have children or you have grandchildren, and, and I'm telling you what, it's worth having children get to have grandchildren. It's just been awesome. But you laugh at your grandkids even while their parents are pulling their hair out, and you just think, uh-huh, you're getting what you deserve. This is, this is exactly how it works. And so it's just good, and it's just funny, and then they, they leave and go home, and it's just real good. And so we, we love our grandkids. But I love my kids, and they, uh, they please me. I haven't been a model father, not by any stretch. I haven't told them nearly enough how much they please me. But when your kid's just beginning to walk, and they, they, they stumble and they fall down, uh, then you, you, just help, you don't criticize them for falling down. You help them get back up, and you hope that they're not hurt, and they get on because, you know, as you get older, you come to understand that's just a foretaste of things to come. You start out stumbling along, you're going to finish the same way when you get older. And so you just... Your kids fall, and your kids sing, and, and a parent hears their grandkids sing or hear their kids sing and think, man, that is the greatest. Frank Sinatra's got nothing on them. They need to have the grandkids come and sing at these things. I mean, because my grandkids have got the greatest voices there ever was. Now, you say, well, you hear them singing. They're off-key and all that. No, but they please me. They please me because they're mine. That's how I am with the Father. All my stumbling, off-key, mess-ups, Sermons that you can sleep through unless I'm really loud uh, or unless somebody turns the lights on. All of those things, all the imperfections of my life, um, whether they be physical imperfections, whether they be uh, spiritual imperfections, whether they be mental imperfections, God looks at me through the light of his son. Can you see this, folks? It's so important that you see this, that God looks at us through the light of his son. We are so linked to Jesus that we're going to please him throughout all eternity. I won't start right now. I want my life to please him. I want him to look at me and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My whole life is to declare his righteousness. He has remitted the sins that are past, the Bible says. This verse makes it clear. What about those things that are in the future? I think about old Paul when he write the, wrote the letter to Philemon. And he said, Philemon, with regard to your slave Onesimus, he said, I have paid all of his debts. And by the way, if he acquires any debts in the future, I've already paid for them too. And Jesus Christ looks at us and says, by the way, Father, I have propitiated for everything that he's done in the past, and by the way, everything that he's going to do in the future, I have already paid for those things too. So what do I have to boast in? Paul put it in another text of passage of Scripture. He said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 of this text, he says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? The law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So I can boast in the Lord. I can boast in Jesus. I tell you, there's nothing greater than what Jesus has done for us. No greater person, no greater power, no greater price, no greater pardon, no greater future than what Jesus can provide for us. Ain't nobody like Jesus. William Cowper discovered the answer in an insane asylum. So you say, well, when he's 33 years old, he came to live happily ever after. That's how we like all, everything. So it sounds like a fairy tale, he lived happily ever after. Well, not so fast. As I mentioned, Cowper had struggled all his life 
He was born in 1731, would die in 1800. His mother died when he was six. Not long after that, his father sent him to a boarding school and for the rest of his life had very little to do with him. He was a great, great poet in England, Cowper was. And he wrote one piece about his father. It's one of the most pitiful pleas that you ever would ever possibly read about why a father should be involved in his children's life. From age 10 to 17, he attended Westminster Private School. He would later talk about being bullied and even hint that in that school he was sexually abused. That period of time, the first 17 years of his life, cast such a shadow across his life, he never fully recovered. He had four major mental breakdowns. He fell in love with Theodora Cowper, a cousin, and would pursue the possibility of marriage with her for seven years. And her father eventually stepped in and ended it. And so he never married, and neither did Theodora. He would write 19 poems dedicated to her. His life was a mess. Mental illness, broken heart, attempts at suicide. He might have been finished had it not been for an older couple who took him in in the year 1765. And then for the next 20 years of his life, he was in a church and he had a pastor whose name was John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. You see, Newton and Cowper had something in common. Both of them had lost their mother at age six. Whereas Newton had not been abandoned by his father, his father took him to sea with him. And we know much of the story of Newton, but Cowper felt abandoned. And he found in this church in Olney, he found a heart again. He found a heart beat again, and he experienced the love the people poured out upon him. And he and John Newton wrote a hymnal together, the hymns that some of them we still sing to this day. He never got well. I said, I wish I could tell you that he lived happily ever after, but he never got well. He never felt pleasing to his father. He was as orthodox in his theology as he could possibly be, and he felt that uh, according to the grace of God, that a person who came to Jesus would never fall away. There was just one problem with that. He didn't feel like that applied to him. Somehow in his thought processes, he thought that he had fallen away to the point that he could never be restored, and he struggled with this thought and with this illness all the way until he died in 1800. John Piper wrote a wonderful piece about him several years ago. I encourage you to read it. It's called Insanity and Spiritual Songs in the Soul of a Saint, Reflections on the Life of William Cowper by John Piper. You may live your whole life thinking that God 
is not pleased. You may be like Cowper, who discovered a fountain filled with blood. <laughs> and discovered the forgiveness of one who has experienced that Jesus Christ has stepped into their place. You may live your life in doubt. I've known some folks that I've tried my best and have tried to help them, even by opening God's Word, to say you don't need to doubt. You need to trust Jesus. You don't need to doubt. You need to just trust Jesus. You may say, well, Pastor, I, I can't seem to get peace. I can't be relieved of this doubt. And the truth is, you may live your whole life thinking that God is not pleased, only to find that God is already pleased with His Son on your behalf. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. We appreciate you tuning in. We pray that this has been a blessing to you, and I pray that today you in your own heart can take heart because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, and Jesus came to be the Savior of all who would call upon Him. And if today you've never trusted in Him, I encourage you to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive me and save me. And God's Word says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our purpose in all of this is to encourage you to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to take heart in Jesus. He cares for you.